Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. And we're here today for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. My guest today is Keith Hansen, um, which is uh, it's a real treat to have you, Keith, and I'm excited to be talking to you today. Thank you for having me. It's excited to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I warned you um, that my first two questions just you have a, a, a pretty uh, decorated background. So my first two questions, just to do you justice, are going to be kind of long uh, in terms of the questions themselves. So let's kick it off. So you've had such an interesting life and trajectory up to this point that if I were a true completist, I would need about three or four hours with you to cover it all. That said, let's get to some of the high points. First, quick background on you. You attended Apollo Elementary for fifth grade, Green Acres Middle School, and Airline High School. And this is in your own words, you are a longtime resident, a failed 2018 city council candidate, <laughs> yes. a serial entrepreneur, and now Shreveport's first chief technology officer under the Perkins administration. Let's start here. How are we doing in training our technology workforce? Is the size of that population growing in size locally? Talk to me about some of the programs the local schools are offering to teach some of those skills and any other STEM-based curriculum and efforts locally you would like to highlight. Oh, yeah. So, um you know, what originally took me away from Shreveport, I kind of cut my teeth out in Dallas, um, you know, when I was about 19 or so, um, 1920, somewhere around there, um, because you couldn't find a job writing software here. <laughs> I've been writing code since I was 12, first job 16 for Porter's Cleaners, uh, running a simple uh, inventory system. Uh, that they ended up using for a couple of years after I left and you know I just spent two and a half hours a day after school for ten dollars an hour writing it right they said learn it and we'll pay you and please solve our problems <laughs> uh, and so I kind of got hooked at that point and then to my dismay you know really the only uh, technical jobs were in a call center uh, which is funny because I mean that's mostly where most IT professionals end up as you know starting out at the help desk the call center etc so um you know compared to when i left we're doing a lot better there are uh companies i can refer people to um problematically though a lot of software development jobs and a lot of employers don't hire that many um the outsized value you get out of a software developer means generally that you won't need a hundred of them compared to, you know, a call center or something. You know, that's a human to a human connection over and over. Whereas, one programmer's code can touch hundreds of thousands of people, right? So, um, and then just the profit and loss and business around, you know, each developer's. Anyway, there's not a lot of organizations that require hundreds of developers here. They're not manufacturing lines, right? So it's a very different industry. Um, you know, you see cities like Austin and others 
where they're attracting venture capital and thus they're attracting the startups and thus they're attracting more jobs because there are new companies uh, like every year, if not every six months or so, right? Um, we just don't have that uh, here. And so there's not a huge driver for software development. Um, cybersecurity is exploding here. Um, you know, just, I think it was two years ago, uh, the governor was here um, highlighting our cybersecurity industry in Shreveport um, and brought the whole state's cybersecurity industry into our city. Um, so that was awesome to be a part of. I got to meet, so when I was in high school, I did do a little bit of not black hat hacking, but more like gray hat, get in, look around, not change anything, not screw anything up, get out, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, certainly, the uh, uh, the types of hackers I would want to be in my network if they ever got in, right? <laughs> uh, but um, so it was, you know, that was a whole another life for me. You know, had a different term been taken uh, in my career, um, but that is exploding here, and I would say, uh, arguably, it will continue to explode. Uh, this isn't going away as more and more of our devices gain an internet protocol address, an IP address, uh, begin to talk to the internet, whether that be now our phones, um, later maybe our toasters, right? Uh, um, every one of those devices is a hole into your home. Um, you've seen probably a lot of headlines around uh, smart home, uh, camera systems, baby monitors getting hacked, like creepy, right? You know, just ugh cringe. Um, that's going to become more and more prevalent. Um, and so uh, cybersecurity is never going to go away. It's only going to grow, especially as smart cities and things like that come to bear. Uh, more devices on poles, uh, more devices on cars, uh, etc. So all of that's coming and it will never stop and there will never not be a guy, gray hat or black hat, wanting to get into your stuff. Um, now, in general, I just not to be alarmist or anything, um, just so you understand and the audience understands, mo most of the time, a hacker is not targeting Keith Hansen. They are sweeping across the internet looking for any hole in anywhere because they want to use your resources to go do other things with, right? You may not even realize they're using your resources after they hack into you. Uh, just because they're only using it when it's idle or when you're not there or in the middle of the night or things like that. There's a lot of sneaky ways they, they work. Um, so anyway, all that to say, more connected devices, more hacking. Uh, hacking will never go away. Um, and we need the good hackers, the white hat hackers to defend us. So that's a great growth industry. You can get it on the ground floor and quickly work your way up promotion year after year generally in the industry. Uh, and lots of certs too. So there's multiple pathways. You don't have to have a four year degree. You don't have to have a two year degree. You can just get certs. And certified ethical hacker, they got security plus. There's all kinds of things that can prove that you know your stuff enough to give you a shot, right? And I'm big on that. Um, I don't have a four-year degree, uh, self-taught in almost everything I've done, um, which is argue, you know, I mean, people have told me you're, that's not normal. Um, that's not something you can ask everybody to do. <laughs> but I know so many people, and people I've hired in the past. Um, I call them my diamonds in the rough all the time. Like, they're arguably a flyer that you kind of take as an employer. Um, but I do the de-risking exercises, right? Like, so bring them in, um, work with them for a week, 
don't even ask them to code something. Just just pair up alongside them. You drive, they listen. They drive, you listen and watch, right? Um, and I would do that for two weeks at a time with a, a, a flyer diving on the rough. And after two weeks, if we weren't productive, it didn't work out, right? I only wasted two weeks of my wasted two weeks of my time, right? Um, but if it does work out, uh, I would put them on client work, uh, paired them up with like a, a senior developer. I started an agency, and we'll probably get into that. But uh, you know, pair them up with a senior developer. Senior developer A is okay, is it? Then we would start them out at a reduced rate for our clientele, put them on low risk projects, and just here's some steak. Go sink your teeth into it, right? Uh, go as fast as you can, but there's no risk. There's no timeline on these. Um, and you are charging our client half the rate we typically do, and they love that. So, you know, you've got some breathing room, but not much, right? So do a good job, right? And then on and on. And, and so we would just progress them through an apprenticeship that way. Um, oh, and I do this all the time. You'll have to steer me back on track. Uh, yeah, I was just saying. Oh, and, tech you know, industry here. Yeah. yeah, and schools, programs. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about um, yeah. you know what makes you proud or who you think is doing a really good job in terms of bolstering this technology workforce. I remember when I was running for my failed council seat, uh, <clears throat> which I'm so happy happened. <laughs> um, you know, I looked up the numbers of uh, any technology type uh, degree. So all of IT, and if, for those who don't know, IT has so many different facets. You can sysadmin, you can help desk, you can put hands on PC tech, you can run wires, network infrastructure, you can run virtual machines, you can be a cloud engineer. Like I'm scratching the tip of the very tip of the iceberg of all the roles that you can have in the industry. Right? Um, but, um, you know, there's so many different roles that you can go into, and when I looked at all of those types of roles combined into a percentage of graduates in the city of Shreveport's colleges, which, you know, we have three in our region, right, um, at least, not, and those are public, right, like, not even including the private ones like Centenary and others, you know, we were, we were producing less than 1% um, of the total grads into comp sci, computer science. And that's a, a smaller gamut of IT, but um, these are the jobs I'm talking about. And, and I just want to paint the picture, too. Like, these jobs are incredible. Um, you know, this was back in the day, and I don't want to, like, stroke my gray beard or anything, but, like, uh, back around, um, I would say, like, 06, 07, 08, I was just getting into the industry, and I started out at 12.50 an hour in the call center. They open a software dev department. I help train all my friend managers, and we get into the department, and now we're off the floor, right? That was awesome. Uh, and they just wanted us to make tools for all the people on the floor, which we knew inside and out, you know? We had all the same problems recently, you know? It's still fresh pain. Um, but so, you know, I started out there, which was amazing, and that got me some initial experience. Um, and then I got recruited by a headhunter out into Garland, Texas, of all places, um, starting out at 40K, and I'm 21 years old. You know, like, I don't know what to do with that much money. I thought it was crazy. They loved it, because, you know, this guy's fixing all their bugs, and he's only 40K, right? Uh, and so, uh, one year later, I made 60. Another year later, I made 80. 
right? I'm 24 by this point, you know? I mean, most of my friends were still going through their debt accumulation, right? <laughs> uh, and so I felt really lucky, really lucky. Um, and I say that all the time, like, uh, I'm so lucky. I crawled up into an attic and found a programming book, and my dad let me monkey around on my computer that was floppy, floppy disks. And, and that was the only one he let me touch at the time, you know, so... Um, Let me so, interrupt one sec. Yeah, so when please. you say 1%, what were you, so what were you referring oh, to? total graduates being pumped out of our college systems, less than 1%. Okay, I got you. We're being produced into the IT field. Okay. Ridiculous, right? Uh, like there's no way you can, at, you can say as a college, we support the IT, you know, industry and then pump out 1%, Right. There's a, there's a huge disconnect somewhere along the line, and I, I gotta be honest, like, I don't know what that is yet. I'm also very much not in the education space. Like, there's a very big firewall between city municipal responsibility and education. But, you know, just being me and wanting to see others have this industry here, um, it's disappointing, I, I'll be honest, you know. And I hate saying that stuff out loud because I know I know what it's like on the inside of bureaucratic institutions, right? Like, especially now, um, it's very difficult. So uh, I will say, you know, I'm not thrilled with it, but there's some really, really bright spots that um, I am optimistic about. And I'm an optimist by nature, so um, take that for what it is. But uh, LSUS, uh, if you haven't seen their cyber collaboratory, it is jaw-droppingly incredible. They have 43 printers. They have uh, an emergency operations center with big monitors on the wall. I'd love to give my real-time crime center that kind of capability. Right now, like we, we took a room about a little smaller than this, and it was a closet, and we just hung five TVs on the wall, right? Like, they've got everything like a gold, and <laughs> you know, they've got the special software where you can say, oh, I want this window on four screens, boom, done, right? And I, I need four different screens now, boom, done, right? Like, they've got all that, right? And that's really useful. I'll, you know, like, we're talking about having a real-time crime center become, in times of uh, emergency, um, we want to feed in all the sensor data. We're going to put weather stations up and very interesting stuff, uh, actually, in that space. But, you know, weather sensors, wind speed, uh, rainfall detection, flood sensors, like, all kinds of stuff, right? And if we can feed all that in during a massive emergency, well, they're tapped right into the, uh, the 911 dispatch center, right? Um, so fire, EMS, and police would all know in the moment when something just absolutely catastrophic is happening um, in one region of our city, uh, which, you know, it's, it's, I think it's like 120 square miles or something, right? Huge, um, very important in the time of disaster. And I've got plenty of case examples I can give you if you want to dive deeper. But, um, but so, so I'm very excited about what I see over there. Uh, they have a whole cybersecurity red team, blue team, sort of, you know, they play hacker games basically, defense and attack, and, and then they reverse, right? They try to steal files and that's how they win, right? It's capture the flag, but hacking style, right? Um, <clears throat> and then they've done a lot of entrepreneurial pitch competitions in there. Um, I think that is, I have been in the startup space for a long time now, um, less so now that I've donned the suit and tie bureaucrat role. But um, you know, before then, I was almost exclusively working with startups as, as a uh, consultancy. 
Um, and I do think that is going to need to increase as well. Almost all entrepreneurial pursuit today has some technology component in it will require you know, IT professionals to step in and help. Um, so I think some of those are the things that we can start seeing as drivers uh, to increase that. Um, but I don't know how to answer the question, why don't we have more students? We offer CompSci. Um, we have incredible professors at LSUS, and I talk about them a lot because we work really closely together. Um, they're very into the idea of micromanufacturing. Um, micromanufacturing is like, <clears throat> think do it yourself but like with process and procedure right um, but we just did some great exercises with uh, LSUS and in our internship program um, we plopped them down in their um, their whole uh, their whole center there and they gave us tables and power and we brought buzz saws and like I mean I don't know what they're called I don't use power tools but <laughs> they drill holes in metal <laughs> mounted cameras to the sides of our boxes so we can keep all the cords on the inside instead of be dangling on the outside on the poles and things like that and they just like loved <clears throat> being in that space uh, it was just inspiring to be around all that technology and all these people I mean they have a circuit board printer over there right like I mean it's just they're next level. I'm like, we're lucky to have somebody over there thinking like this. And while, you know, you can't go in and just see a horde of students doing all kinds of printery things and security-y things, you know, or anything like that, um, it's picking up, right? And I don't know, it's, I don't believe in build it and they will come. Um, but I do think for something like that, you've got to get that ground floor number. So, you know, that's a highlight, uh, I think. Um, there's some local community um, folks who have been, you know, doing, you know, serving, serving the citizens for a long time now, trying to get STEM programs. But what you find is that, and we experimented with this at my agency, um, then called Twinage Labs, now they're Ruby Shore. Um, but, uh, you know, we launched this Minecraft camp that just blew the teachers' minds. It was fun for the kids, right? Um, we even got some funding from the school for it, and then we had to go fend for ourselves. Like, what school system doesn't pump it from the top? Like, that's the way it operates, and, and I'm sure there are reasons, right? Knowing now what I know about government, what I didn't before, I'm certain there are dang good reasons on the other side of this question, right? Um, but like, why are we making all principals adopt this stuff? Why is it five schools? This is unfair to our citizens. Like, it's just unjust in a lot of ways, in my opinion. So that's very frustrating to see for me as a technologist and a previous entrepreneur in technology um, that's happening down in some of the most important moments in our kids' lives. Like, middle school is the go period for, if you're not in STEM before that, it's gonna be really hard for you to get into STEM. If you weren't encouraged to think that you could be smart in math, and you were told you weren't around middle school and no one corrects that, you're done. Um, you're probably, statistics show you probably won't get a job in this field. So these are some like small but huge problems that I feel like it's just too many disjointed efforts. There's not a wedge that our community is driving all the time from a high level perspective. That's a long answer. No, it's great. I got a lot to cover, so I'm going to push you along. Yes, um, please. So you've been deeply involved in addressing the digital divide in Shreveport-Bossier. 
I came across, I think this is a quote of yours. If not, I'm, I'm calling it a quote of yours. Okay, um, I'll take it. The internet is not affordable for many who earn $35,000 or less, which is 42.8% of those living in Shreveport. Why is this an issue? Well, for a number of reasons. Public safety stems from economic stability. Economic stability stems from educational opportunity and access. And with the addition of a global pandemic, education is now heavily dependent on internet connectivity. Because it's fascinating, talk to me first about the method you conceived of to address which neighborhoods were most in need of broadband access. I, sh I, was, I was going to buy or uh, bring some um, props, uh, and I wished I had. I totally forgot running out the door, but. Um, okay, so you, all right. <laughs> I'm gonna take you day one, year one of CTO, because I got four objectives. Um, I sat the mayor down when he was offering to appoint, you know, to put me up for appointment. Still had to get confirmed and all that, pretty well, right? But um, I was like, I can't operate without objectives, right? Like, I gotta know, what do you need me to accomplish? Like, if I don't do anything else, what do you need me to accomplish in four years for you, right? Um, you can let me go and run after that. I haven't had a boss in a decade, like, and I had to bring in the bacon myself uh, for quite a few people for eight years now, so at that point, right? Um, but like, if you can give me the wedge you want me to start driving, you know, three or four points that you want me to focus on, that I will be a hound dog. Like that, that's all I'll do. I'll focus on those things. So, he said, universal uh, broadband. That was his most important thing. Universal access, which at the time, <clears throat> I'd say this all the time internally. You know, everybody looked at him with like two heads on his neck. Right, you know, what is universal broadband? What does it matter? How does that matter at all, right? And then it was like he was prescient, right? I mean, then the pandemic hit in the middle of his term, and all of a sudden, everyone felt how important this was, and all of us realized, without it, it is atrocious, right? Like you can't live this way in modern society, right? So I get in there and I'm like, okay, we got a digital divide. Let's go look at the maps, right? There's got to be maps federally regulated right it's got to be you know something i can just say where's the line right so naive uh so the maps are self-reported by our private companies um a lot of people call them the incumbent providers your comcast your uh, bell south your or well at&t and all of those types right um the ISPs and, and look, they do a great job. We are all watching this on the internet right now, right? So, um, you know, uh, and so, uh, you know, they are serving those who can pay for it. Now, um, technologies like cable were universal in the sense that everybody required cable television access, right? That is heavily regulated. You want to be a cable company for a city and get a franchise? You got to hit every house, right? That's the rules. Um, and so you see a cable wire everywhere. Well, uh, what is not as regulated is the data across that. Um, the same thing with our phone lines. 
so AT&T DSL, for instance. And that's a technology that ran over a universal service of phone lines, right? Um, but that data is not regulated. So they have whole services off to the side where if you're on DSL, technically you cannot be, there are no rules for you to operate with, right? Okay, so in the FCC's you know, wisdom many years ago, uh, they decide that the map is a self-reported map by the ISPs and all they have to do is say what they offer in that area. And so I open up the map, 100% covered. Where's this digital divide, right? And now I know there's a cable wire next to every single house. 99.9% .9 of houses in Freeport have a cable wire next to it. All right, what's going on? Like, I'm talking to the people who are already in my ear, year one, day one, right? Um, we have a digital divide, we gotta fix it, right? Mayor saying we got a digital divide, we gotta fix it. All these people coming out of the woodwork telling me we got a digital divide, we gotta fix it. And so I'm looking around, I'm like, there's a wire there? Like, I'm thinking about digital divide like an access problem, right? It's not. Not in, I, I, now I delineate between two, you have rural digital divide and then you have urban digital divide. Rural digital divide is a lot easier to understand. They need a wire, that's it. And if they can't get wires out there, then they need cellular, right? And if they don't have cellular, there's probably another wire problem to the tower, right? There's no fiber line to that dead spot that they need to put the tower up, right? Very simple, that's it, cut and drop, right? Most rural folks typically are able to afford as long as they have the wire or the cellular radio wave in range, right? In an urban digital divide, we found out it's way more nuanced. Um, and so what we're finding is there are lots of programs uh, that you can go. Right now it's the ACP, the Affordable Connectivity Program, I think it's called. Um, and uh, I let everybody know who wants to know about that stuff, um, but this has existed for a decade plus, that is by another name, right? But it's subsidized internet, right? We're paying the private industry to allow people who cannot afford their prices to get paid. Basically, we're paying the private industry to not try and push prices downward to be more affordable. As you can tell, I have a lot of problems with that, right? Um, now, I wouldn't have any problems with it if it worked. Um, but when you start knocking doors and talking to our citizens, um, they'll tell you that, oh yeah, well, I tried that, right? Uh, and I'm like, okay, well, what happened? Because they don't have internet right now. Like, that was their first answer. Do you have internet? No. Oh, have you tried? Purchasing it. Yeah, I can't afford it. Okay, well, do you know about the free program? Up to $60 a month, you'd get pretty good internet on this. Like, you would enjoy it, I promise. Like, and it's, it's free, right? Oh, yeah, I did that. I called them. Um, they wanted to charge me for back charges. Well, they're not supposed to do that, right? But who regulates them? Who has access to those customer calls? Nobody but the company. And they'll even tell you, we read, well, we police ourselves, right? Like, literally in my office, someone told me this. Right? And I was just like, wow, wouldn't that be nice to be wholly opaque to a utility, right? That's the way I see internet connections now. And I think most people do, they just don't call it that yet. Um, and so that's super frustrating, right? So we have programs out there that can help people. I mean, our tax dollars hard at work as citizens at the federal level 
being dumped into companies and our citizens can't take advantage of it because they want to run a self-install. These are digitally divided. How are they going to do a self-install? Do you think most of these people know what the blinking lights mean on that modem and when it's good and when it's bad? No. The orange just looks like another blinking light, right? Like, there's not a problem. I don't understand. And if it's your fault, it's a $100 charge. You already can't afford internet every month. You think you can afford a $100 charge to fix whatever problem is in your old, you know, architecture in your house? Like, it's, there are so many thorns in this process, right? And so that's the chief problem, is it's not affordable. And it's not universally accessible in that way. And you'll see a lot of like, um, I'm probably gonna get in so much trouble, but I don't care, I don't care. People need another stuff. So uh, you'll see a lot of um, uh, fanfare around like a fiber line being put into a Cedar Grove neighborhood or something, right? And like, I want as much fiber as we can get everywhere. But then they complain about the adoption. Well, you're putting it in an underserved neighborhood, right? Like they hadn't had any new technology down that street. And, was the last time you ran a truck out there, right? Like those types of issues. And is the price affordable? I mean, we got to get down into like $10 a month territory for a lot of people. And even that can be a hardship for some. Um, and so I argue all the time, we need it to be a utility. We need municipalities to get involved. Um, I'm big on local control of this stuff. We are way more incentivized as a city to you turn into a, turn it into a utility and there, that can be all kinds of different ways. It doesn't have to be, uh, not everybody loves the water company, right? <laughs> Few do. <laughs> I see the comments. I run the Facebook pages. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, not everybody has a pleasant idea of a city running a utility, right? But here's what, what cities are good at. We are good at mapping and knowing where things are in our right-of-ways. That means I can put big pipes into the ground with no nothing in it, right? And then pull fiber through those pipes and charge lessees uh, a fee for being in our pipes. The biggest barrier to expanding wires in your communities and making things affordable is competition. And I'll get to that. There's a whole segment that you want to hear, I think. But, uh, you know, competition and then the dig. It's like the most expenses you'll get the most expensive you'll get is $35 per linear foot. It adds up really fast when you're snaking through neighborhoods and all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and, and just to touch on the competition aspect, it is purely economic today. Now, there were franchise agreements decades ago that said, you can't go here, this is our territory, right? Their industry doesn't have that anymore, especially in street like that doesn't exist. Franchise agreements are just franchise agreements. Everybody gets one and everybody can go anywhere, and et cetera, right? But it doesn't make entrepreneurial sense and economic sense for somebody to do the dig, advertise, and try and capture already happy customers, happy, <laughs> already, you know, one uh, customers, like getting them away from a company is way harder than going to an area that doesn't have the service yet and then lighting it up like a new neighborhood, right? And new conduit and new roads and new right-of-ways and nothing in those right-of-ways yet. Like all those problems that you would have going into an already established neighborhood go away when you go to new establishments. So all the time you'll see like the fastest internet you could possibly ever get in a brand new neighborhood whereas almost everywhere else 
that technology hasn't been touched for 5, 10, 15, 20 years sometimes, right? Um, and so all this could be fixed, by the way, if ISPs would go in, lose money, and upgrade their equipment regularly instead of expanding elsewhere to make more money over there. But the dollars and cents and shareholders and stakeholders, right? And so that's why I say all the time, like, <laughs> our approach as a nation to the broadband problem is wholly backwards. We should be incentivizing all of our cities and subsidizing our cities at the federal level, in my opinion, to push them to put tons of conduit in the ground so that, you know, Jeffrey's ISP could start up and say, I only want to service this one neighborhood because it's my neighborhood and I want to take the calls and I want to have great customer service and I'll put the end units in, but I don't have to do the dig. So now your startup cost is like through the freaking floor now, right? And now you can compete, right? Now you can compete on marketing and service alone, not the network effect you generated, right? Network effect, you can look it up, there's a whole Wikipedia on it. It has lots of second, third, fourth order effects that just like freeze out anybody else. So, so tell everyone how you how you diagnose. Oh, thank you. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, no problem. So, so that's the problem, right? Like yep. people can't afford it. This is why they can't afford it. Most, I feel like when I explain that stuff, this is all news to them. Like this is how the industry works. Um, this is the way they're regulated or not, uh, and this is what you can and can't do to them when they don't do this stuff. Um, so how do we figure out where to go now? All right. So I have general vicinity of coverage offered. Right, um, which we all know is not the coverage you actually get or the speed you actually get. So, um, being a hacker in high school, uh, I often wardrobe around Bozier. <laughs> and war driving is when you put an antenna on the top of your car and you have a laptop next to you, you just drive around and you hear a bing and somebody's got an open Wi-Fi network at that point, right? So when it's open, I would just do my gray hat thing and take a look and then get back out. <laughs> Uh, and never, never hurt anybody, right? So that, that was my rule. It's just, you know, I just want to see what people do with networks as a 16-year-old, right? Like, I just want to see what that is going on in that, you know, area. Um, and so I would war drive around and I would hack into Wi-Fi networks. And um, thank God I never got caught because um, then I probably would have served a sentence. <laughs> and the laws for this are terrible, by the way. Um, because pretty much any time you send a packet, it goes across state lines, right? It doesn't matter where you are. <laughs> it's going across state lines, generally. So you're already committing federal crimes when you do this. But anyway, all right. So there is a tool called Kismet. Um, anyway, open source tools have funny names, but it's called Kismet. And you can hook in a GPS receiver to Kismet. And as you're driving around, and anytime it sees a new SSID, the ID of the Wi-Fi, it'll log that GPS dot to a map tell you, you know, what the signal strength was, etc. Okay, so 15-year-old Keith is out there using this stuff. Now I'm 36 in the seat, right? Trying to figure out what street do I need to go down? Not census tract, right? I know there are some streets that have amazing connectivity because the head end right there got upgraded, you know, five years ago. Um, and some streets haven't been touched for decades because various reasons, right? Um, I want to go down those streets. And I want to make sure that connectivity isn't any better than, like nobody had the hard data. Nobody, even still today, nobody has adoption data. This is original data we generated, right? Um, so how do we generate it? So 
we took a Raspberry Pi, and it's about the size of a credit card. Um, if you hooked in power, keyboard, mouse, and monitor, it would be a computer. But if you hook in power, and then you connect it to a network, or you drive around with it in your car, it is arguably a sensor, right? It's more like an Internet of Things device hanging on a pole somewhere, more than it is a computer, right? And so I treated it like that. So we hooked in a GPS device to a Raspberry Pi, we drove around for a little while, and we ran Kismet. Now, Kismet is powerful. It can log encrypted packets, and you can decrypt those later, totally against the law. Don't do it, right? Um, but uh, it can also disable all that functionality and just map the access points. And so that's what we did. We installed Kismet on a Raspberry Pi. We put a GPS device next to it, like hooked into it, integrated all those things together to where it produced a, a comma-separated values file, a CSV and Excel sheet of SSID strength, point in time, um, latitude, longitude. Um, so that worked on our tests, and then we bought, I think like 18 of them, and we stuck cell phone battery packs into a little enclosure. You know, all of this told, everything I'm telling you about, in total cost about $7,000. Um, the Raspberry Pis are anywhere from like $60, $70. The enclosures are like $8. The battery packs are probably the most expensive part. You got cables as well, SD cards, all the materials, and a GPS receiver, right? Um, so all told, we I think we didn't even, I know I didn't hit my procurement limit. Let me put it that way. There's like 12 or 14 forms that I go through to buy anything. So um, so anyway, we, we put that on garbage trucks. And like, I, I wish this was my original idea to use garbage trucks for all the things. Um, but I stole this idea from another, uh, another me in another city who jokingly said, I wish we could just put a button that, you know, our truck drivers smash uh, that automatically tags a 311 alert for potholes in the ground. And I was just like, like, of all the fleet vehicles that you could touch in the entire city, private, public, or otherwise, there are two vehicles that hits every street, and really only one of them hits every street every week, right? And that's a garbage truck. Um, and so the other one's postal, right? So if I could work with the feds, maybe, but that's even more bureaucracy, so I'm okay. <laughs> I'll just use my garbage trucks. Uh, and so we put those solutions on garbage trucks, they drive around, they hit every street every week, they see stuff none of us would ever generally think of happening in our city. They know way more than, you know, I think anyone realizes about our city just driving around. Um, but they got a job to do, uh, and they got to focus on that job. So I can't ask them to like write down every 311 issue they see, right? Or hit a button even, like they're dumping trash in their truck and going on the next one as fast as they humanly possibly can, right? Um, and so it's all about the sensors now. So I'm like, I tend to make our garbage trucks one of the smartest vehicles in the nation, arguably. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of opportunity there. But that's how we mapped it. And we basically just used the Wi-Fi signal as a comparative study. And how long that process take of sending all the trucks out? Like, how long did it take... After a week, you had all the data. You because every street, every week. Okay. That was so incredible about it. It was yeah. like, I needed it now. There were grand opportunities now. And at least I knew they were coming. And then the pandemic hit, and then it ranked, right? Um, I didn't have to try to go get money, basically. And just because we hadn't we hadn't defined this, I mean, I understand, and I'm sure most people understand, but just for the layman out there, quickly 
define why digital divide is such an issue um, and what that means to not have broadband access and sure. why it can make you so deficient. <clears throat> I love this because it's taken me a long time to like kind of sum it up, but I was explaining it to my kid the other day. He asked me, how's your day, Dad? And so I was telling him about all the nine million meetings I was having. He said this time he was listening, so I actually told him the real deal the whole time, and he kept up with me. It was great, but he was like, uh, he was asking me what the digital divide was, just like you just did, you know. And so I had to explain it to my six-year-old, right? Uh, well, no, seven. Now he's about to turn eight. Oh my God. Um, but I had to explain it to my seven-year-old, right? And so this is the way I explained it to him. You know how. It's really fun that you get to go on YouTube and see whatever toy that, you know, someone's opening, you know, or a game you might want to ask me to buy first, but you want to make sure it's one of those things that you really want. Or remember when we didn't know what a crocodile sounded like, right? Like we just looked that up, you know, we just found out on YouTube. Um, you know, that's awesome, isn't it? And he was like, yeah, you know, I mean, there was like no other thought in his head other than, of course, what are you talking about, dad? I was like, some people don't have the internet. And he was just like, what does that even mean, you know? <laughs> That's all he's ever known is to be connected. It's amazing. And I was like, well, um, we're lucky because we can afford how much it costs. But some people can't afford it because they have, a, you know, jobs that don't pay well enough to be able to afford that. Or um, they're down on their luck and they just hit a bad spot and can't afford it right now. And they have to stop. Um, but it's not free. Like, everybody has to pay for it. And some people can't. And he was like, what do they do? I was like, well, I'll probably go outside and play more. I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> I'm the guy who's on the keyboard all day. So, uh, but he was like, yeah, that makes sense. They would have more time to play, I guess. But, and I was like, yeah, but, like, there's a lot of buts here, right? They don't get to look up stuff on the internet. They don't get to, in, you know, as an adult, they don't get to apply to jobs. They don't update their LinkedIn. They don't have any visibility from anyone else um, that might hire them out of their situation they're in. There is no upward mobility when you don't have digital access anymore. That's just de facto. You, the help wanted ads in a newspaper. I mean, when does that ever happen? You know, so it's all digital now. And tell people out there, just because I came across that, I thought it was so interesting, the elevator analogy. Oh, um... Yeah, I, uh, well, when I was trying to explain to folks what it was like, it's like, you know, at, in, at City Hall, our elevators are funky, if you've ever been there, but you have to tap the floor, and then it opens, and then it will shut after a certain time, of course, like most elevators. Um, now, most of that's fine for able-bodied people, but for those in wheelchairs, uh, especially the motorized ones, I haven't seen one single one single wheelchair go through those doors that didn't get smashed because they take a little longer than the rest of us and so i had to ask my help desk like can we tweak the dial on this can we i mean i know everybody wants to shut the doors fast but like that's too fast you know we're not thinking about all of our citizens when we make those decisions and it's like one of those small little oversights right but until you're in it and you see it every day like it's hard you you, you won't notice it because it's just operating like you normally think the world operates, right? Um, and so the digital divide is very much that problem. Unless you know what it's like to have two gigs of data and not unlimited on your cell phone, and you don't have a Wi-Fi at home, 
that you can just offload all that binge browsing and Netflixing and like all of that uh, onto your Wi-Fi connection, which typically is unlimited, um, then you don't know what it's like to have very little oxygen, right? That's what it feels like to me. I went down in my plan to uh, two gigabytes thinking, I'll just ration, right? And I turned Wi-Fi off and I cellular only. Um, <clears throat> so it was like as much cellular only as I could as I could generate, right? I paid three times for more bandwidth. Now I typically use eight gigs, so I reduced my own bandwidth by over 25% and I still had to pay three times, right? Um, you just don't know until you take it away from yourself. But that's the visual divide in a nutshell. Perfect. And, um, <clears throat> Just staying with digital divide for a second. So once you determine which neighborhoods were most in need of broadband access, what's involved in actually bringing um, bringing access or correcting the situation in those neighborhoods, and have we corrected it? Not yet. Um, so I'm super excited. You guys are actually going to be in on some inside info that will be released later this week. But I'm going to say it here, uh, and Mark will just have to whip We're not publishing until like a week, so <laughs> <laughs> your, your press awesome. release will beat us. Great. Uh, but I was going to give you the inside story. <laughs> no, that's perfect. So, I love having it. Um, so what I found is this. Everyone knows how to use a Wi-Fi network. End of story, right? Folks who have limited data plans know how to jump on Wi-Fi networks everywhere they go. They can because they're trying to save bandwidth so they don't get shut down, right? Um, and not have any internet access, basically. Um, so everybody knows how to use a Wi-Fi network, and if they don't, it's really easy to teach them. Almost every single device has a Wi-Fi card in it now, right? Um, Wi-Fi is so uh, useful because it's so ubiquitous, right? So it's like, it's everywhere almost. Um, businesses, coffee shops, schools, neighbors, right? Like, it's everywhere. So so that's that's key number one, is that, it, you know, the solution needs to be everywhere, right? And then two, it needs to be so simple that it's like falling out of your bed on top of the Wi-Fi, right? Like that's that's my goal. As I, I want people just to like not even think of, oh, hey, there's there's some Wi-Fi. Let me jump on that, right? Um, and so and, and so those are the two things: the uh, ease of access, uh, and then ubiquity, and then affordability is the last piece, right? So those first two are key. I don't need to be calling somebody to try and get set up, right? Like, I don't want to have someone run out to my house and run a wire and check all that stuff. Like, that's difficult for anyone to deal with. Definitely the digital divided, especially if they don't understand what's going on and how they can get screwed over in that situation too and incur a $100 plus charge on their own wires, right? <clears throat> so like all those problems need to go away. Um, if we're gonna offer ACP, things like it, get rid of the paperwork, right? Um, either you know, look at my federal tax return, do something, but then like disseminate that information to all the ISPs in my area so that when I call, they know I'm on the list and I get it free. Boom, end of story, right? Like that's the level that I think we need to see and I don't think we'll ever see that. Uh, the industry is too fractured. It's, it's privatized and protected uh, by the wrong types of folks that in this conversation. In my opinion, lobbyists and, and whatnot, legislatures, uh, etc. Um, uh, and it uh, there is no downward pressure on the costs. It's only getting more expensive, right? Um, and so, like uh, all these problems persist even with all the federal money raining down from the sky on anyone who needs it, right? 
uh, all very frustrating for me to watch because ultimately what we're talking about is not the tech and it's not the pipes in the ground and it's not the wires, it's none of that, right? It is bureaucracy getting in the way of progress and money that's sitting there ready to be spent, right? Um, it is being spent often. But, so we gotta get rid of all of the red tape around getting connected. Um, and it can't be a risk for somebody to be connected, right? That's the chief problem. Um, for those that have tried programs and then been burned, they'll never try them again. Like that's it, done, over. You are one of them, go away. Doesn't matter who you are, right? I don't wanna talk to you, they charged me a ridiculous fee and then I canceled everything and now they say I owe them and they kept calling me for six months. Like, this is what people really went through, right? So, the exciting news is um, we have partnered with the libraries and some brilliant bleeding edge technology um, called Helium. So, if anyone wants to check that out, helium.com. Uh, primarily that network, I've been researching it for about two and a half years now, um, is used for my smart city sensors that will go on poles and garbage trucks and like all kinds of stuff, right? They provide a long range radio network that's kind of the Uber model. If you have a roof and a power, uh, you know, power line and a, uh, uh, a Wi-Fi or backhaul, an internet connection to the device, then you as a citizen will be rewarded in crypto. I know, two heads, but stick with me. You'll be rewarded in crypto uh, that I, as uh, the city, can use your roof's network provider that you created on you know, just a little antenna that basically it's about that tall and you can see almost a kilometer to 10 kilometers, depending, uh, line of sight, uh, you know, just from that one antenna. So imagine now all the sensors I can backhaul that are like 20 byte, you know, packets and whatnot, right? Okay, I say all that to say, back to do what? Um, the same company has realized that this, you know, flipping on its head model, where we reward citizens to do the work, basically, that cities typically were doing, for tens of millions of dollars being deployed, right? Uh, we're gonna reward you guys as citizens uh, and a roof and a connection and everything to backhaul my packets and it, you won't even feel it, right? But you'll probably make anywhere from 50 to $100 a month just by being around, right? Uh, that's the Helium Network, okay? They realize that that radio protocol and idea is not limited to LoRaWAN, the long range radio network. Any radio wave, and like all things are radio waves, okay? Cellular, Wi-Fi, uh, microwave towers, uh, radio radio waves, uh, LoRaWAN, like all this stuff is just an oscillating wave that is really fast and really tight, uh, like high energy, or really long and can penetrate through, you know, structure. But every time it's doing this, there's more data on that, right? So if in one second you can get a whole bunch of these, instead of one of those, that determines how fast something is, right? And so now when you're thinking about, nobody thinks about LoRaWAN, but LoRaWAN's long and low data rate, Wi-Fi, um, very high, two and a half gigahertz, um, not a lot of penetration outside your home. That's why it doesn't go for a, a kilometer or whatever, right? Um, cellular can go a lot further, but has problems through like, uh, Lots of trees and coverage, and that's why we get dead spots, buildings get in the way, etc. All everything's a radio wave, right? So when you think about it like this, the tech is here, right? Like you can go buy a 5G millimeter wave radio for your house, 
Amazon has a whole program now where you can say, I want 10 of these for my private 5G millimeter wave network so we could have super crazy fast wireless networking, right? And so, um, you know, all of this is coming. It's already here. Uh, the tech is here. Why is it limited to ISPs only, right? Why doesn't anyone else do this? As I told you, uh, the costs to run the network, that's a problem, right? For anyone wanting to start up and compete. Um, and then finally, uh, getting the customers, right? Um, and then after, you know, entrepreneurial efforts, then you've got, what do you charge the customer, customer service, you know, all those types of things to worry about in a typical business, right? So, um, I want a completely ubiquitous, open network that, and I don't care if you have money or not, right? If this is what you need, let's get you what you need, right? That, that's what I want. Um, internet should be a utility. It's like water to me, right? It's like electricity. And, and by the way, every one of those utilities went through a privatization phase, right? That's all we're seeing right now. We're on the very you know, beginnings of the internet. I mean, it's only been around since like the 80s, right? So I think the first packets were sent in the late 70s, right? So um, you know, we're still in this infancy stage and this is the plan right now is you know, privatization, which obviously doesn't work and it hasn't worked in any utility, right? Um, or else we wouldn't be where we are. So big news is we partner with the libraries. They've got folks over there who already have A, a bleeding heart for those citizens that are underserved and need resources, and then B, a bleeding heart for those that don't know how to connect to the internet. Right? They're already teaching digital literacy courses. They're already showing people, here are the LinkedIn resources that you can go and get for free, right? Here are the certifications that you can go look at if, if this is your bag, right? Like, you can do all of these things on the internet. It's amazing, wow, right? They're already doing that work, right? Secondly, the libraries have big, fat internet fiber pipes. Anybody who has heard fiber or heard me talk about it, I jokingly call it a light pipe. Basically, we're shooting a beam of light down miles at the speed of light, right? And so you can imagine, that's really, really fast, right? And now there's technology on one fiber line, you can stick 40 different connectivities at different um, colors, we'll call it, of visible wavelength, right? Everything's a wavelength. <laughs> uh, so all that to say, we're partnering with them, we're hanging helium-based, um, what's called Citizens Broadband Radio Service, CBRS, that's the type of radio we're using. Um, we are anticipating about a 30 meg cellular connection over the distance that it can see from the tower. And then we'll set up mesh as well around that. Um, and then when somebody wants to connect to that CBRS radio wave and get back hauled onto that big fast light pipe, um, then they go into the library, they present their library card and they say, I need a modem. And if they're in the coverage area, then that person at the library sets them up, username and password, shows them how to connect their phone to it. That person takes it home. It's a hotspot. I mean, it looks like what we used in the middle of the pandemic. And by the way, we just, everybody was just lighting their money on fire. Like that was temporary band-aid solutions. There were no, there were no free deals going on in the industry. Oh, you need internet in places that we should have served it a long time ago? well, let me just charge you another monthly on this school system, right? Like, might as well let, let your money on fire. We'll never see that money again, and it didn't do anything for the problem, right? That's what I mean. This is a permanent solution, right? And there's all kinds of, like, like 
this place, if you had big fat light pipes, you could stick up a radio on the top of this area and cover anyone. And <clears throat> they're still figuring it all out and applying you know, the protocols in place and there's votes that have to be had on the Helium network, but you could be rewarded for every packet you transfer across your network. And you're effectively a carrier at that point. And how big of a radius are we talking about? Um, it depends. So the higher up you can get, the, especially beyond the tree line, the better, right? So if you can get above the tree line, one tower can go anywhere from like five to eight, nine miles, right? Um, you know, in our underserved areas where we plotted out the greatest needs, uh, we're seeing anywhere from a thousand to five thousand homes within one to three miles, right? It's very densely packed, right? Um, which is it's great for my my purposes, right? But but that's the neighborhoods that we're looking at, so. You know, a whole like five thousand homes now have internet with no strings attached, no questions, no documentation. All they have is a library card, no fees, no library fees. Everything's free. Like it couldn't have been better, right? Like I couldn't have paid for this to be like this, right? So, so we've partnered up and we're sticking antennas on roofs right now. I've got a whole team going up. They're probably on a roof right now, actually. Uh, before I got here, I was getting text message updates. Love it. And so, yeah, everybody around um, seven libraries to start with, and I have, I have more money to spend from ARP that I haven't spent yet to go up even more towers and more modems and, you know, all of it. So we should see thousands connected to this within 12 months of launching. It's incredible. I arguably, like, if I did nothing else, like, I would just hang it up right there. Like, it, this was arguably one of the most impactful things that I could have ever done for our community here at Treeport. Well, I know there's something else major you're doing, which I want to kind of shift the conversation to. I just want to add yeah, one please. more thing. I'm so go. sorry. Uh, no, go. Um, you asked, started out with education, yeah. right? Um, on the West Coast, they talk about diversity, and they've talked about diversity for as long as I've been in the career, right? Um, they don't really move the needle, especially on uh, our African-American uh, leadership in tech, and even just like the number of entry level roles that are open in tech, et cetera, right? We have a majority minority city here and over 40% don't have a connection. Now, why do you think the industry is the way it is, right? It's because so many don't have the opportunity to go in an attic and find their dad's programming book, right? There is no self-learning in a community that is not connected. It can't happen, there's no way. And especially if you don't have a, what I call a proper computing device. Phones are awesome. Like, I love phones, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it is after the future, for sure. Um, but have you ever tried to work on a spreadsheet on a phone? You can't, right? The knowledge work that is typically required for high paying salaries cannot happen on a phone. So we've gotta get devices in the homes, and the first step, we gotta get connectivity to be ubiquitous and free. And that directly will translate into more demand for these classes, and then we'll see more students going into the college systems and the certs and all of that. And then we'll have a pipeline that we can say, yo, West Coast, like, I know you guys like it out there. But we got a ton of talent over here that's got fast connectivity and can work from home, right? That's how we can, like, overnight dramatically change our whole economic outlook, in my opinion. So. Love it. All right, I'm going to shift to yes, another yes. thing that Sorry. I know you're very passionate about. So... Crime is obviously on our community's mind right now, and you've been deeply involved in working to address the issue. For us laymen, 
I put myself in that group. Uh, talk to me a little about what's happening with the installation of cameras in downtown Shreveport. Also, talk to me about the real-time crime center. What is it, and how does it work in helping to bring down crime? Cool. Yeah. Um, so I I did things a little differently with our real-time crime center. Um, I had already started a skunk works team. I call it that. I call it special projects to make it sound official, but they're really my skunk works team. Um, I started with data science, GIS, uh, software developer, uh, IoT architect, uh, social media. Um, so those type, five types of roles now are their own divisions at this point. So six months in, I created that division after reorg the whole department and modernized their position description with like all of that, and got their pay to not be below poverty levels. So um, utterly ridiculous. But anyway, that's a whole other whole other bag. Right? <laughs> Um, so I got um, my Skunk Wars team going and we started trying to figure out what's the biggest massive impact that we can make as a team. All of us are doing you know, individual projects that need to be done in IT, um, but if we were to focus on one thing as a team, what does that look like? We got hardware people, we got software people, we got social media people, we got the outreach out, and then we got a whole department surrounding us that can help, right? One thing I kept thinking of was like, we don't have LPR, license plate recognition, anywhere in the city. Now, I know it can be kind of like cringe-inducing when we start talking about like Big Brother-esque technologies, and I cringe too. Like, I want anyone listening to know that um, hopefully a guy like me is always in this seat, right? Uh, everything I do is to heed privacy, right? Uh, now. Nobody has any right to public space privacy, right? Like if you're in the middle of the road, everyone can see you. I'm sorry, that's just the world we live in, right? Um, and I'm okay with that. Some people aren't even okay with that, right? But, but um, a lot of problems I saw when I started researching about all the tech and cameras and things like that in policing was retention-based. Um, the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, like all these would come down hard on a real-time crime center or a police department for technology use because they stored like 10 years of license plates wholesale, right? And they used 0.1% of all of that to solve crime, right? Now, you need that 0.1% to be logged somewhere later on that you might need later, right? But here's how we're doing it a little differently. Like, one, we started out with the premise that my IT team cannot handle another thing. Right, like they are here, and I'm not getting any more budget for my infrastructure team to run a big data array and store tons and tons and tons of, of data on hard drives that will fail eventually, right? All these major problems, right, that I don't have people for. So this has got to be self-contained, like whatever we do that goes in a garbage truck or on a pole or a sensor for a house temperature or like whatever, right? Um, flood sensors in your laundry room, like all this got to be self-contained and it can't be storing data uh, where some tech geek has to touch it constantly, right? And like, you know, TLC it every day, right? Uh, so we need everything distributed. And what that means is that if it has no internet but power, evidence is still on, whatever the system is, right? That's the goal, you know? I don't want to depend on a flappy uh, cellular connection, right? or potentially down the line from a wireline connection, right, for whatever we're doing. And so we kind of established that idea first. We're going edge-based, we're putting computers as 
far out near the need as possible, um, and it can't touch my IT team. Right? <laughs> Skunkworks team only, right? That's all you get, and we're going to launch a lot of stuff. So be prepared to maintain down the road, and ideally, you made yourself that easier on yourself. And so we started out by creating a. Uh, this was actually this is interesting. Uh, we created a, a 360 dash cam on the top of a police car. <laughs> when we did this, we're using a Raspberry Pi, a PoE switch, power over Ethernet switch, um, and then five like off the shelf $99 4K um, PoE cameras. And we created a little 3D printed base where we just screwed in a camera, a camera, a camera, a camera, a camera, and then we put a two terabyte drive. Uh, right next to the Raspberry Pi over USB, right? And so like all this is in this ugly case and there's like five wires coming out of this police car. <laughs> they let me do it, I can't believe they let me do it. Uh, and then we just like cinched the strap down uh, onto the whole camera array and it worked. And it recorded 4K footage from every angle around that car. Now when the light bar was on, like we didn't, we didn't even think, right? Like these are just, these are the fun parts. I mean, they weren't fun in the moment. We were like, oh, we're such idiots, you know? Like, <laughs> of course the light bar, right? We need to now figure out how to side mount them and like all that. Unfortunately, at that time, not this was like year two, right? That I'm, you know, actually deploying these things. And uh, not everyone in the police department appreciated my meddling, right? <laughs> Which I get it. I wouldn't want anybody coming in telling me how I should run it, right? Um, I, it was all in the spirit of trying to help them, right? Um, and, but this had just happened around uh, one of uh, the deaths in custody. Uh, and I don't want to bring it all back up. Uh, um, but we didn't act as fast as we could as a city uh, and as a police department about those issues because often we were getting uh, camera footage late. Not because the dash cam wasn't on, it was, but it was pointing in the wrong direction, right? So a 360 degree cam, one, protects the officer, right? People sue officers all the time for BS, right? It's absolutely terrible what they go through. But the more cameras that we're watching, the better, in my opinion, right? And then two, it also protects the citizen. And I, that's not comfortable for officers or, or officer-friendly types, right? Uh, people out there that true blue citizens, I call them, you know. Um, but they do need to be watched. Um, government's transparent, right? It's one of the reasons why it works. Right? You can write a public records request and expose everything, right? Um, and we need that everywhere. Um, we need that transparency everywhere. And so that was what I proposed and got shot down very quickly. They're like, well, who's going to maintain this stuff? And what happens when you're gone, Keith? And like, I mean, that's like the ever-present question. Right? What happens when you're gone? Well, I don't know. What does government do when people leave? Well, we train people with process and procedure, right? <laughs> we have documents and training programs and culture that we build around learning. And it wasn't there when I got there, but, you know, like we're building all of that, right? So uh, I'm setting up for people after me, right? Um, so that answer is sort of like that early question. And then... So um, they canned it, right? That we shelved the project. We go to something else. I can't remember what it was. It was insignificant at this point. Um, and then it became a twinkle in the mayor's eye to talk about a real-time crime center. 
um, crime was on the rise, pandemic was in full swing, um, just lots of issues that, God, I wish we had some eyes out there, right? Um, people couldn't, people won't give tips in some of the neighborhoods we need the tips most, for good reason. Um, and so we need a way for us to get insight and intel um, that is publicly acceptable, privacy respecting, and doesn't burden my IT team and the police will love, right? So these are all the requirements, right? And so we go down and we visit the Real Time Crime Center and you know we're doing garbage truck stuff and like all this other things, right? And we visit the Real Time Crime Center in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Both of them told us, if you can, don't put it in your police department. So my head's exploding in the room because I'm like, where the heck do you put it? And I'm trying hard not to curse on your podcast, but like, where in the world do you put this? Um, other than the police department, I see badge, 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 badge in these rooms. Like, who else would run this, right? And so I started doing research. Well, public domain, like, it's the public domain, right? It's, yeah, it creeps me out to think about too, but you could request footage in a public records request of a public space, and I would have to turn it over to you if it was on record, right? Um, that's just the way the world works, right? Um, and so I start researching and I find out there is no requirement for it to be law enforcement only. Now, if we're doing secret squirrel stuff, well, that's police, that's not me, right? Let them do that, they gotta get warrants and like go through the process and do the whole nine, right? Um, but for public space surveillance, there's not a whole lot that requires you to be a post-certified officer on the payroll of the police department. Now that caused a whole bunch of kerfuffles for my true blue citizens, especially those that are on the council. <laughs> As you can see, I have gone through some walls uh, in my journey and left some Keith-shaped holes in them, right? <laughs> but, but on the other side of all of that, I think everybody sees the benefit. One, I'm not taking police off the street. Like we have a shortage of, uh, now we're under 100, but it's like in the 90s still of officers um, for all kinds of reasons, right? Two, just in my experience, officers don't like technology. Like they would rather do the police work, right? But a lot of days that police work entails the footage and pulling it off the VMS of some business. And I mean, they'll spend four plus hours trying to figure out that system, look for the clip, it's glitchy, it's slow, it's all these problems because this person's had that whole system for eight years now and it's barely passed video VHS tapes, you know? So, you know, and you're asking an officer on the beat to do that? Like, no, y'all, like this is backwards. Like we shouldn't be doing it. We should have specialists going in and who know all these systems and know what to look for and know who to ask the questions for and who to call when they don't know the answer and like all those things. And let the police do the police work, right? We can get simple evidence off of a VMS anytime, anywhere. So that's really easy for a tech person to do, right? Um, and so like all of those kind of factors combined, I'm in the back of the car riding back with the mayor and um, then our assistant police chief and Markel, our uh, marketing director, or well, I guess, uh, what is it, PR, public relations, right? Um, director, uh, and uh, I just asked him, like the mayor, I was like, well, like who's building this? Like, obviously you want to do this, and I want it too, like this is incredible, you know? Um, it's gonna be amazing for like investigators to go back and like ask for three days ago, blah, 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 right? Which is actually not what happens in real life today, I'll tell you more, but, but anyway, like 
And he goes, well, I guess you're going to have to do that, Keith. <laughs> Which is usual, par for the course. I'm like, here, go do the thing. And then he just gets out of the way, right? Like, it's, I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, it's, I, would, I would probably not be able to work any other way, to be frank. Um, I haven't had a boss now, you know, well, before this in eight years for government. Four years of having a boss is almost too many, right, for me. But, but anyway, um, so I get back and I'm like, I'm starting to plan it out. We're starting to look at costs. I'm researching every vendor under the sun now for video management, and all of them, all of them are selling me, you know, thousands of dollars of a pole camera, and all it is is an internet connection and a camera. There's no disc, there's no edge, there's no nothing, right? There's just a feed, an RTSP stream coming out of that camera on that pole, and then we gotta store it in a big data array, exactly what I don't want, right? And I gotta tie up all my people to go buy this thing and spend $150,000 on the data storage, and blah, blah, blah. And then it's only gonna end up being needing more. And it's gonna be more and more complicated to manage retention over time, all these things, right? All these problems. And single point of failure, right? So many single points of failure in that system. You got a flapping internet connection, your evidence is gone. Sorry, right? Um, you got uh, power loss, of course. Nothing can survive power loss, although we're, we're working on it. Um, your evidence is gone. Let me, let me interrupt one sec. So is the vision, is the vision for a real-time crime center, every public space in Shreveport has some sort of camera on it? Not every public space. I think that's excessive. But I do see well over a thousand camera feeds coming out of this. Okay. Um, and that's not even covering a tenth of our city with camera coverage. And how do you prioritize where those? We use uh, multiple factors, but it's mostly decided by police. So they do crime stat analysis across the whole, all every district, and they pinpoint where they would like the cameras the most. And then we in the real-time crime center, as we're taking calls, they're logging everything they do is auditable. That was key. I wanted it to be ultra transparent. Nobody can say that we're doing the wrong things in there. You can't. Uh, they're on two cameras all day. Their screen is recorded all day. And they write in a log exactly what they did. And the clips are on file. And the manager reviews all of this every day, right? So, and they know. They're, uh, it's a strict uh, division. Uh, it's not classified. It is the private sector, basically. If you screw up too many times, you're gone. There is no process of appeal and a board and all of that. There's none of that. Right? And I kept it that way on purpose. A, to go fast and hire fast and hire the way I need to instead of the process that I typically have to go through, which is not bad, but it's not great either. Right? Sure. Two-week, four-week turnaround times is too much, right? Um, so they know. They, they are on their P's and Q's. If they hold up their phone like they're recording the screen, they're fired. Like, I mean, they don't do that, right? They're not idiots, you know? They want the job, you know? So, uh, and these are people who are desperate to help in any way they possibly can. And so how long has the Real-Time Crime Center been up and running and... One year this month. Okay, and yeah. what can you point to in terms of metrics that, hey, Just this, this is... Just this week, we turned over four pieces of evidence. So three, two came from citizens, which, amazing, right? Amazing, and I can't believe it's taken this long to get the mass awareness around it. I have done so many TV spots for this, right? What does that mean, it came from citizens? Like, people have cameras on their house, and they just send in the clip to Kevin at the Real Time Crime Center, who's my manager over there, because that's what's on the website, and he knew that he could get the evidence over it. And it was, it was multiple shots fired, like nine, nine shots in rapid succession. That was a call on 911, but there was no camera available, right? 
So really quickly, the way an analyst works is look at the call board, watch where the calls are, pull up the cameras near it now. If you can see things, begin clipping immediately in the moment, right? So that goes to long-term storage, those clips. All other storage is about seven days or less. So there's very little that you as a citizen will have to worry about. No one's gonna care what you did in a year, right? Except maybe private companies that wanna monetize that information, right? But you can't really monetize seven days worth of data. <laughs> All right? It's gonna take four days just to get the information to you, right? <laughs> so I make it purposely difficult, uh, and that's how I protect your privacy. Um, but when they are in the moment, you don't need retention. When they are pulling up literally every call on the board and pulling the cameras up and clipping in the moments, after, like before the officer's done with the stop, we have the clips ready for them and we let them know in a, in a blast that the manager sends out every day, right? Um, and so that's a great example of, of like a day in the life and then some firm evidence that was a shots fired call and now we have a make, model, vehicle, color, height description, uh, you know, race description, et cetera, and they've got somebody who ran right by the camera during that whole thing. He was the one getting shot at, and now we have a really good picture of this guy that we can go track down and ask questions, right? Like, these are the things, any breadcrumb you can give an investigator when all you know is shots were fired is useful, right? <laughs> and so moving forward, are you just going to keep adding cameras to, is that the... That's the goal. Okay. Um, right now, we have over five, almost 500 integrated business cameras. Those are businesses that cooperated with us. We put a small free box, no barriers to entry. So you don't have to call management. You just got to let me in your network closet. <laughs> right? And our, our real-time crime center manager knocks doors and visits and leaves his card. And, and residents can do this too? No. Okay. Yeah, we don't want residents filmed because there's too many ways that can go wrong. Um, and it's a lot harder to support mass, mass uh, residents, right? It's a lot easier to support 60, 70 businesses, right? Um, that have really good coverage on a corner or things like that. So um, they have a little box on their end that if they have a camera system existing already, we just pull off their uh, network video recorder and onto our little box and that's over a tunnel into the real-time crime center. Um, now. None of the footage leaves the box. So it's on-prem in your business the whole time. Again, another privacy respecting. And you set the retention as the business owner. If you only want 24 hours for us to see, fine. It doesn't affect our operations because we're about monitoring real time, right? It's the real time crime center, right? Um, and I will say, after having seen and talked to so many other real time crime centers, arguably we are doing more real time than most real time crime centers for a fraction of the cost too. So. I'm very proud of all of that. <laughs> you should be. Uh, yeah, but but those are great examples. Like we found a stash house at an apartment complex. Like we saw them throw guns and shut the door and run from the police on camera, right? And so that helped that apartment complex realize, oh, no one's living in that. No one was supposed to be in there. We're changing the locks, changing the keys, like et cetera, et cetera. And now we took away yet a, another way for them uh, the, the criminal element to operate around that apartment complex. They were tired of it, right? But they don't have the staff to watch all that all the time. So we're actually literally calling 911 sometimes as the first caller. Um, that's only when there's not a call up on the board. They basically go and all the businesses that want it, they will check in basically and look at all the cameras, five, 10 minutes, move on to the next you know, site that wants that service. 
It's amazing. I think so. And our staff really love it, and they're great at what they do. Um, a lot of these people, almost all of them have criminal justice backgrounds already, but didn't want to go be a cop. And that's just their back, right? That's just their life. They didn't want to take that route for all the reasons, right? More power to those that do, right? But there's a lot of people out there that have the same burning passion for criminal justice and want to help some way, and this was an awesome way to help. All right, so I'm down to two questions awesome. with you. Um, the first is, and these are more just Keith <clears throat> looking out into the community and, okay. and, and what do you see? So the first is, what's holding us back from being one of the next great small cities in America? Internet. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, it's a huge factor in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, I think it's the typical stuff, right? It's education, um, but we have some of the best schools in the state here, um, arguably some in the nation as well. Uh, magnets are a good example of that. Um, these are the things I hear all the time, right? Our education is bad, our crime is low, and our jobs aren't here, right? Well, there's a lot of jobs that are that are coming. Um, you know, Amazon is here. They're they're going to have warehouse level jobs and likely need people to fix the robots and like all kinds of stuff, right? There's Second and third order effects on a type of employer like that. Um, you know, uh, I joked a little bit about the internet, but it is kind of true, right? Like, if you go look at Lafayette, for instance, um, they have a utility for their internet, and it's fiber to every door, and they pay for it every year, right? And it's not subsidies, it's not, it's from the water bill. <laughs> it's a utility. Right? And it costs 10 extra cents on everyone's bill for 30 years. That's how they raise the money for it. Um, and so now they're already positive in, in their billing and all of that. Cash, they were cash flow positive within two years. Um, just a huge success out there. And they were the first and last municipal broadband in the entire state of Louisiana. And that they had to fight all the way to the Supreme Court for that. But you know where I tell people to go if they don't want to be in New Orleans or Baton Rouge? Shreveport, <laughs> but if it's a techie who doesn't like Shreveport for whatever reason, I said, well, look, if I were going anywhere else in Louisiana, and I'm not, but if I were, then it'd be Lafayette. I mean, you can get a gig fiber pipe to your house. It's already there, the, up to your doorstep, um, for $60 a month, right? Like $50 a month. These are the same prices you and I pay for a fraction of that speed, right? And I think they just upgraded them, no increase in cost to like two gig pipes, and they're working on 10 gig pipes. So. Like it's incredible, especially for like at home work and homework. Like, and that's the way, by the way. Like, in my opinion, if somebody wants to get out of whatever path they're in right now, go on Google, learn how to code, learn IT, do a cert, and work from home in a low cost of living area because they're paying high cost of living salaries all over the nation, don't care where you're at. And you're gonna, you're gonna be able to bank way more money at home in a Shreveport than you can in an Austin where you have to drive for an hour for five miles, um, and a, as opposed to a place like this or even Lafayette, right, where our traffic doesn't ever get bad. Literally, rush hour just adds three minutes to my time. Right? <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> someone had to turn left three times in front of me, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, so, like, I, I am kind of serious about, you know, the Internet problem and need fast pipes for the high-tech crowd. Uh, and, and those are the jobs, I think, that transform area it's just it, it's 
it's meritocratic, right? It's a meritocracy in the tech industry. There are words and thorns, right? But in general, if you can code or you can fix my problems with my IT work, I don't care where you came from. Come work for us, right? Um, that's what I care about. And I think most employers in technology feel that way, especially those who came out of the industry and became a boss, right? All right, and then my my final question, which is similar to the one I just asked, and you've touched upon a little bit, is just what's going to propel us forward? Yeah, I I mean, I don't think it can be overstated how much our digital divide is holding us back. Right? It's it, it permeates our society, right? It's everywhere. Bill paying. Yeah. You know how many people come in and pay with a check? It's astounding. It's like wow. 20, 30% of our water bills come in via money orders at a local gas uh, station, right? With a, you know, an exchange or whatever they use. Um, you know, a bunch of them come in with check orders, some are mail-ins. Like they're obviously not adopting technology, right? Why, right? It doesn't make sense. They can check their bill, they can refute the bill, they can do all kinds of things with the online tools, right? Um, so just like on seeing those levels in IT at its core, like you can see how it just, it seeps into everything, right? So if you're not comfortable online, you don't trust things online, et cetera, because you don't know anything about online, you are going to forever be holding yourself back, let alone don't have the connectivity, right? Um, and those just have like, like I say, like second and third order effects, right? Because you're not used to online forms and what it means when you forget a, a field in highlights it with red and gives you some weird symbols and says you got to use those, right? Little things like that um, aren't familiar to you, so when you're filling out a job application, you might just abandon it, right? Um, instead of submit it, instead of work through it, right? Little stuff that it's hard to like write down on a list for people, you know, um, that we all just take for granted because we've been using it since it was around, you know? Um, I think that's, that's a big problem. I am sorry. Well, I, I get so. I just said what up, what will propel us forward. Oh, oh, right. So, like, I really believe um, what I'm very excited about with the library connections. Um, uh, there may be we're working on it, but there might be one to one mentoring with LinkedIn coaches, and that will help people prepare a resume and make themselves look more appealing online, which is a whole skill set onto its onto its own, right? Um, you know, get enrolled in certification classes and like all these t different type of online courses, et cetera, for not just tech related stuff, but like all kinds of things, medical, co medical coding. Uh, you, know, you could do that from home too. Like, I mean, there's just like, if, <laughs> if there's one hack I can promote to hack our economy here, it's work from home. But to do that well, you need an internet connection for everybody. And, and you know, before then you need to help bust the digital divide and you know, just the digital literacy, right? Which is what makes the library partnership so exciting to me is they're already into literacy, right? There's some extra train the trainer courses and then they'll explode into our community and it'll be amazing because free internet, right? Like everybody's going to come running. It'll get their library numbers up, they'll get more funding, they can keep this thing going forever, right? Like, so exciting. Um, so like, I, I think that stuff is going to propel us forward. But of course I do, right? Like, the, the, you know, I think at large, Reducing crime, um, increasing our you know, educational attainment here, especially in the tech sector, um, like those things, I you know absolutely. But everything starts with the you know the, the at home education, right? In my opinion, um, 
how many words you hear by the time you're three. Like all of those problems, right, are going on because of an illiterate uh, society in, in, in the digital era. Um, and so it's really holding us back. And I just can't overstate it. It's once you get down in the weeds on this, like during the pandemic, a mother told us she had to quit her job because she was dealing with technology problems 12 hours a day or whatever <laughs> uh, with three kids in the house, right? Um, can you imagine? Can you imagine having to deal with tech problems so often and share resources between kids who are fighting for them to like check in on the class or whatever and some are going uh, truant because they can't connect? Like, this is 2022 now. Um, how did we ever deal with this? Like, this is unreal. And it's because of the privatized approach that we take in our nation for broadband right now. Like, end of story. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's just the way it has, like, this, the way the cookie crumbles here. Uh, if you can't afford that stuff, you got limited options. If you take the effort to go run through the programs and try and get something for free and subsidized, good luck, right? multi-step process, there's paperwork that you have to fax or scan the digitally divided, right? Like, how do you do this, right? So now you gotta go to the library, you gotta get help for that if you've never done it before. Uh, maybe you download an app on your phone, but that's more data that you're uploading again. It's just, it's, it feeds its own self. It just grows as a problem over time, right? So the sooner that we tackle this, I don't know, I, I just, you know, two decades down the road, I think we're gonna look back and be like, I can't believe they privatized all this. Like, this should have been a utility a long time ago. Look at that city. Look at this city. I have dozens I can point to that have just like opened it up, citywide Wi-Fi, things like that. Um, and it's it's transformational. You see house values rise. You see educational attainment rise in that street, right? Like it's that pinpoint um, accuracy of improvements that I've seen, study after study after study, uh, by folks who who found some grant money and hung some Wi-Fi on poles, right? We didn't choose that because it was like four times as expensive as this option I told you about. Um, and cellular is a little easier to grok for people. Oh, we got a hotspot. I understand a hotspot, right? I don't know what that pole outside is doing, but I understand what a hotspot is, right? So I, I really think that this stuff is going to transform us. And, and arguably, like, <laughs> I didn't even know that it was a problem, and I was embedded in the tech sector. All I did was tech all day, every day, for every minute of my life, pretty much, you know? Um, or my professional life. And so, you know, I just, I am thankful that I was under an administration who prioritized that, even though, especially during election time, everybody looked at him like he was crazy, like two heads on his neck, weird, you know, like, what is universal access? Like, what does this even matter? And it's a thing, right? And we are laggards uh, of, for adopting that terminology, right? Um, but it's everywhere in the nation, and any tech person understands what he's talking about. Um, but citizens don't, right? And so he took a major leap, Adrian did, um, by A, making that a plank that we have to accomplish within four years, which is a whole task unto itself. Many cities have worked on it for a decade plus now. Everything's getting a little faster with more money from you know the ARP funds and the new bills coming down the pipe and the chip uh, bill that is you know being debated and whatnot. All these things, you know, more money's coming. We'll probably see a lot more roll out a lot faster in the next five to 10 years. And anything happens in five to 10 in the tech industry, so that's totally a safe assumption. <laughs> but, but I do really believe that we'll look back in 20 years and realize we should have been doing municipal access a long time ago. 
we all probably hurt our nation by doing it any other way. Well, love all you're doing. Love having you on here. Uh, this community is so lucky to have you and um, really appreciate you making time when I know you don't have much. Well, I, I appreciate being here. I, uh, I gave up being a boss to try and get back to the city. So it's fun to be able to actually, you know, talk about all this stuff and not worry too much about how long the soundbite is. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks, Keith. Thank you.